Hi, this is Chase Masterson, and you're listening to the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. I'm John Leeson, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Podcast. You're most welcome. This is Barnaby Edwards, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Podcast. You are most welcome. Hello, my name's Sophie Aldred, and you're listening to the Doctor Who Podcast. Hello, I'm Colin Baker, and you, you lucky people, are listening to the Doctor Who Podcast. Yes, hello and welcome to episode 200 of the Doctor Who podcast and as 200! 200! And there was much rejoicing. Uh, we have an interview with Malcolm Hulk and we have an interview with script editor and Doctor Who aficionado extraordinaire, Terence Dix. Sir Terence Dix, as I like to mm, call him. Absolutely. He should be a knight. There's, there's no question about it. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, we need to give a little bit of a background, I think, as to how... The interview with Malcolm Hulk, who of course passed away a long, long time ago, came to be in the possession of the Doctor Who podcast. And uh, it was through a radio presenter at Bristol Community Radio who listens to the Doctor Who podcast, a chap called Martin. He's friends with Gary Hopkins. And again, you may recognise that name. He's written several big Finnish plays. Now, Gary used to run a fanzine many, many years ago. But as part of that, he asked for an interview with Malcolm Hulk. And Malcolm said yes. And Gary had recently found that tape recording. So what you're about to hear now is Gary and Martin introducing this fascinating interview with Malcolm Holt. We, we couldn't really think of any other way to celebrate our 200th episode of the Doctor Who podcast when then presenting you with this incredibly special interview. And, and we really hope you all enjoy it. Happy anniversary, guys. Those good folk at the Doctor Who podcast have been very kind, not exactly to let us into the camper van, we're not that important, but we are allowed to sit in the awning. I apologise for the stains, don't worry, I'll put a bit of Febreze on it. We've got an interesting type of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey magic that Stephen Moffat himself would be proud of, because we've got a modern writer, Gary Hopkins, who's written for television, written for Sherlock Holmes, and himself a big Finnish author, interviewing a man who was really influential in forming the shape of Doctor Who in the late 60s the great Malcolm Hulk. How did that come about? Well, um, at the time, uh, I was working on a Doctor Who fan magazine, one of many that were around at the time. But I did try to get hold of as many people who'd worked behind the scenes of Doctor Who to try and spice things up a bit and get some first-hand accounts of what had happened back in the 1960s and 70s. During the course of that, I contacted... Malcolm Hulk, who was one of the writers who'd worked on the show right from the beginning. Uh, and at that point, 1979, he'd, he'd finished working on the show, but uh, had worked on lots of other things 
since, including Crossroads. OK, and uh, it's fair to say that this is a handheld tape recorder, 1979 style. So the quality isn't brilliant, but it's just exclusive, the fact that we get to hear his voice for the first time. He, to my knowledge, he hasn't appeared on any DVD for any audio. No, sadly, um, Mac, uh, for that was his um, preferred... Uh, name he, he liked to be called Mac was uh, he died very soon after I spoke to him uh, I think he died in the summer of 1979 and uh, it was before really before the advent of the, the sort of technology that we use now to um, to create extras and all sorts of things at best people might might have turned up at a convention and talked direct to the audience but um, but it was long before DVD extras. Well, we're about to hear his voice. Um, talk me through the beginning of the interview then. Uh, there have been a lot of hints about the the story he'd written back in 1964, 63-64, which went through, I, I think he resubmitted it a number of times, but I, I had to ask him uh, to give me a little bit more information about that. Well, when it began, I was one of the first people asked to write for it. But an interesting thing happened. I did come up with an idea, and it was commissioned, and etc., etc. But then the show started to go out, and the second serial involved the Daleks. And the Daleks were such a wow of a success that it changed, rather, the, the nature of what was intended for Doctor Who. Yeah. So therefore, the serial that I had done no longer fitted. I mean, I was paid money, but it wasn't produced. Doctor who then took off in another direction. The idea was uh, that the Doctor lands on a planet which is the uh, same size as this one and is on the other side of the sun, which is why we didn't know about it. Uh, I can't forget what, uh, what happened, but uh, everything was sort of opposite. You know, this happens to every writer. You write uh, for a series and suddenly for some reason or other, the, the, the nature of it changes. And now the Daleks, you see, presented a new dimension. See, the first uh, serial was a four-parter set in the Stone Age, and these people had forgotten how to make fire or something. Um, and then the second one was uh, the Daleks. Well, that was a wow of a success. I didn't come back to Doctor Who until... Some years later, when with David Ellis, we did Doctor Who and the Faceless One. Met David, David Ellis, and uh, we got talking at a party, and for some reason we, we began to get this idea. Oh, the first idea was that it was all to be in a big store, using the dummies. The dummies came to life at night, something like that. But then, in discussions with Jerry Davis, the script editor between ourselves, it evolved into what it became. Pauline Collins, I remember very well, she was the girl who had come to the airport to try and find out what had happened to her brother. She was what you would call the trigger yeah. that made the gun go off. She was very good. Most of it was studio set. A rather amusing thing. You know, this was, took place at Gatwick. The filming was done in winter. When the uh, story had been resolved, the basic story, we wrote in directions, the airport comes to life again, and then we gave various indications of how to show it coming to life. 
when I went down to see a bit of filming, the director came over to us and he said, it says here, the airport comes to life again. Have you seen this airport <laughs> in winter? But they did quite well. Uh, obviously, if you've got an exciting place for the TARDIS to pop up, like the M1 or something like that, it's better than having it pop up in a sort of dead place. You know, in writing, you're always looking for conflict, so a good idea to have it land materialise on the tarmac, on the uh, runway. And of course, just as a plane is trying to land, if I remember rightly. Then, some years later, I did Doctor Who and the War Games. The War Games was by Terence Dixon myself. You know, when you work in collaboration, it's a good idea to forget immediately whose idea is which. So, who got the basic idea and the development, I wouldn't like to comment on. Uh, yes, that was an important instruction that we did get to find a, re a way of changing Patrick Troughton's appearance, but to leave it open, because no one had yet been... I mean, Patrick had said he didn't want to go on being Doctor Who, so he'd done it for three or four years. He wished to leave. No one had been selected, so they wanted an open-ended serial. We then came up with the idea of, uh, of um, Time Lords. We had to think of some reason we came up with this uh, very complicated way of doing it, I suppose, really, but gave a good few scenes about the uh, trial of Doctor Who and how he gets sentenced to exile. Oh, that was the other thing. They wanted him to look different in the next series because they hadn't got Patrick Trout anymore. And they also had found that... Uh, Serials that took place on Earth tended to get higher ratings. Uh, they wanted him exiled to Earth for some reason or other. Yeah. And then, you know, then they just left it to us to work all that out. I think we did quite an interesting job. It was, you see, to have been a six-parter, if I remember. But after we'd started, a four-parter by somebody else fell through. Either the writer was taken ill, or they couldn't deliver, or they didn't want to go on, or I, I don't know, I don't even know who it was. But we were told about, after we'd already scripted three or four episodes, uh, can you make it go to ten? It was the kind of story that you could stretch. I believe it did begin to lose ratings towards the end. Now, of course, the Warlord's idea must have come early, mustn't it? I wonder yes. if we got the Time Lord's idea at the same time. I just don't remember. Certainly we wouldn't have started scripting until we'd got those things sorted out. Mm -hmm. All that came in the uh, synopsis stage. But who thought of which or whatever? Writing for television, you've got to think all the time economically about sets and cast. But funnily enough, coming to write Doctor Who and the War Games, I mean, write the book. <coughs> uh, I was surprised how much more there was in part 10 than I'd imagined, because of the whole sequence where the Doctor tries to escape from the Warlords, he tries not to be captured, <coughs> which he almost gets away with, and then when he is captured uh, and put on trial, uh, there's a an adjournment or something when he tries to escape again 
So there's quite a there's quite a lot in part ten. Mm-hmm. I, I was quite surprised. I mean, good we wrote all this. So having been responsible for probably the most important 1960s Doctor Who episode by the first one, we get to the dizzy world of colour television in the 1970s. And of course, I guess they were going to be knocking on Mac's door straight away in the first season. Oh, definitely. Because um, he was one of Terence's go-to writers, basically. Somebody he um, Terence could rely on and uh, who was also a very good writer. So why not? Yeah, and uh, his first 1970s story has got the most unusual title. So on television it was Doctor and the Silurians, in the book it was The Caveman, which was the better title really. I was asked to do something in caves. You know, in science fiction there are only two stories. They come to us or we go to them. And I thought, what about they come to us but they've always been here? I said reptilian men. Homo reptilia, as they were called by the doctor. In the days of the brigadier and the master, you were told, we want the brigadier in this, or we want the master in this, you see. And they tried to vary the series of serials for a season to um, use these characters. And do you think the unit, was he a big fan of the unit format? I, I think he, I mean, he was a professional writer who worked with wh- whatever he, the material was. And, and I, I, yes, I think he quite liked it. And it probably didn't exercise an imaginative writer's mind in quite the way that um, a, a completely fantastical story would. But nevertheless, uh, I, I think he did a very good job of handling unit and the characters at that time and uh, homo reptilia as we now refer to them of course and they made a comeback didn't they he brought them back he brought them back as the sea devils um in a story that is was generally uh considered to be one of the better ones uh, of the the john pertwee era and probably of doctor who in its 50 years so it, it's certainly one of mine i i love the sea devils did mac like it yes he did he was very pleased with it and um both from the point of view of the, the handling of the story and also its production values. Oh, I thought the Sea Devils was very well produced. Oh, of course, that had the submarine, which was very well thought, the trick photography and all. And then they, didn't they have smoke or they floated powder to give the idea of plankton? Yeah, yeah it was really, the, the people who do the trick effects for Doctor Who, they do a marvellous job. They, they really take it very seriously. So you talked about the fact that he was definitely given briefs by Terence and Barry to come up with these ideas. The next story, I believe, is Frontier in Space. It was Frontier in Space, which was, as it turned out, the first six parts of a 12-part celebratory Doctor Who story because it was in its 10th year. And uh, he was asked to write the first six episodes, which were a kind of space opera. How did he feel about that? It was an interesting challenge because I suppose he was then running a relay race and had to hand over the baton to the next writer who was going to be Terry Nation. Also, if I remember rightly, Dalek came in right at the end because there again, that was one where I had to write a bit that would take us on to the next series. A draconian says to another draconian, you can never tell from humans' faces what they're thinking, or something like that. They're very enigmatic. <laughs> I think they wanted the Ogrons back. They're nice to write because they're so stupid. Not much done. But for one thing, Doctor Who is a pacifist, isn't he? Uh, which is a political thing. And he's always trying to kind of do a Jimmy Carter between warring sides. I'd say it's a very political show. I thought, remember what 
politics refers to. It refers to the relationships between groups of people. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean left or right or conservative or labor or whatever. It's the relationships of groups of people. So really, almost all Doctor Who's are political, even though the other people are, look like um, reptiles, they're still a group of people. I mean, they're a group of, if they're thinking, creatures. And the next story, which of course was his last story for Doctor Who, again, quite a political beast. Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Now that was again very political, wasn't it? Because there you've got these people who have this lovely idea of golden age, but sometimes people with very good altruistic ideas and overlook the main issue. That's really what the uh, message was behind that one. But what they said to me was that the special effects department had found if we liked, we could show monsters wandering around contemporary London. So could I think of some reason why dinosaurs, etc., might be wandering around contemporary London? So that was my brief, and I came up with with this idea. He's not just responsible for some of the greatest Doctor Who stories on TV. He's equally responsible for some of the greatest books. Yes, that's right. Uh, Those are um, probably the books I come back to more than most because they're they're just so readable. Do you approach the the issue of writing a book any differently from a TV series? Yes, um, for very obvious reasons, but, but... but Mac uh, had a way of being able to sum up exactly what what the differences are between the process involved with one and the process involved with the other. Yeah, he made it very clear. With a television script, you do lots of toing and froing. But remember that in a story, you really have two stories going at once. You know, the good guys and the bad guys. Now, in television, people, particularly in a show for younger people, you don't do very long scenes, people get bored. So therefore you cut from the good guys to the bad guys, the good guys to the bad guys. In a book, this would be very annoying if you got a half-page chapter, another half-page chapter. So therefore in television I would say, you write like this, and in a book you write like this. And by this I mean that in a book you start the next chapter with meanwhile back on the ranch not those words but you can go back in time to what the other people were doing during the previous chapter this could be a reason for changes and another reason for changes is that when you've got the book to write you suddenly realize oh i could make this bit better you think you can make it better whether you, whether in fact you make it better or not i don't know but you feel that you can and therefore you should the space war that was frontier in space the doomsday weapon became a colony in space and uh, the silurians became the cave monsters and the invasion of the dinosaurs became the dinosaur invasion i'd forgotten that one (laughs) again he has a very good very simple explanation for that which makes perfect sense now that's the publishers they they seem to think of new titles which always seem to be better than the ones that were on television see cave monsters to my mind is a better title really than the silurians because cave monsters actually tells you something silurians doesn't tell you anything except we just happen to like the ring of it I think I've read from Terence Dix that he approached writing the novels in quite a meticulous manner with a big wall chart on his office wall with chapters and times and page numbers and things. 
that sounds exactly like Mac. And um, and and when he talks about the process as well, it's very clear that he had a an unorganized mind, although a very creative mind. But um, but he he could see um, in terms of structure how how um, one medium needed to be translated to a different medium. You read through the old script and then you, you just start at the beginning yeah. and uh, but what you're aware of is that because you've read it through you've read the whole say six parts through and then you sit down again and you read the first part again and then you start right well obviously you start at the beginning then you have to remember that some of the people reading this have not well you've got to remember all the time they've never you must expunge from your mind the possibility that they've seen it because they may live in Turkey or Timbuktu yeah. so you've got to describe things but not only things but also the role of people so you've got to try and get all this in there early in the beginning without boring you're doing this first scene but you may decide to run on to the next scene which involves these people or the next two or three scenes that involve these people and then go back to the conflict Story. And he actually wrote a novelisation from a TV story that he hadn't actually written himself. Publishers asked me if I would novelise The Green Death, and with Robert Sloman's uh, approval, and of course he got money out of it, and uh, when I had done the manuscript, I sent it to him, I thought I should, out of deference to him, and he wrote, sent it back with a lovely letter saying how pleased he was. Uh, we were all very happy. And at the time that you were interviewing him, I understand he was writing his last novelisation for the Doctor Who franchise, which was The War Games. At the time we spoke, uh, I, I, I dimly recall that he had the manuscript of The War Games there. Uh, so it was still some months away from actual publication, but he had written it, he'd finished it, and he was thinking about perhaps uh, adapting the faceless ones which would have been the only one left which um, unfortunately he never got the opportunity to do I wrote the war games about last July and it would have been some weeks or months before that that I was asked to yeah I would very much like to do the faceless ones but they haven't asked me yet so I keep nudging them the only one I haven't done of mine and then I will feel satisfied but the faceless ones is a totally good he was such a big part of Doctor Who in the 1960s and the early 70s. But Dinosaur Invasion was the last Doctor Who story that he'd written. And when you interviewed him in 1979, what were his thoughts on where Doctor Who was going? I have to say, he, um, although I did ask the question, he was very reluctant to answer it. Well, I watch it occasionally, but since, you know, quite honestly, if you're not writing for a show, you know, I wrote for Crossroads off and on for seven years, and therefore, naturally, I was on the team, so I watched it every night. But now I watch it if I happen to catch it. But I wouldn't like to make any comment on what I think about it now, because I'm not watching it enough. The producer changed and the script editor changed all at the same time. And as I keep saying that cliche, you know, this is show business, your face doesn't fit or they want to try other people or something or other. So I haven't been asked. Maybe I will again one day, maybe not. But I write books nowadays. I don't write television. Well, thank you very much for sharing this. First of all, thank you very much for 
in the first place actually getting the wherewithal to record the, an interview with the guy uh, and secondly for actually coming on talking to us about uh, the interview and sharing these wonderful words we didn't actually make it into the legendary Doctor Who podcast camper van but spending the last couple of minutes in the awning with you it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Gary. My pleasure. Thank you. I tell you what, though. There's a pub round the corner. Should we go and have a drink? Should we have a pint? You're round. That's the least I can do. Wow. What an interview. A, a, a voice from the past, no less. Malcolm Hulk. A very, very big thanks to Gary for making this uh, recording possible and uh, you know us being able to share it with you our, our wonderful listeners a, a, a real special treat absolutely wonderful there to, to hear a, a voice from the past malcolm hulk uh, who, who wrote so many uh, you know, uh, highly regarded doctor who stories and uh, we are now going to follow that with uh, the person who was script editor at, uh, at the time when when malcolm did the majority of his work for doctor who sir terence dicks <laughs> I now have the very great pleasure of being joined by Who Legend, Mr. Terence Dix. Hello, Terence, and welcome to the Doctor Who podcast. Hello. Hello. First of all, let me ask um, what you thought of the uh, the interview we've just played. First time it's been aired, uh, recorded in 1979. Wonderful conversation with uh, with Matt Hulk. Well, it, you know, it was very nostalgic because, um, you know, it, it, that was a long time ago, and sadly, it's a long, long time now since Mac died. But he was uh, he was very much my mentor in my career, such as it was. The start of it, I owe largely to Mac. So uh, you know, it was uh, it was nice to hear his voice again, you know, and uh, and think about him. How, how did you meet Mac, and how did he become your mentor? I had I was sharing a flat in Hampstead. One of the people was a close friend of mine, the three of us. The other one wasn't, and uh, I found him a bit of a pain. So I was uh, quite keen to get away. I was in advertising then, and a friend, a colleague, was getting married. And he said, look, when I, I've got a couple of rooms in Hampstead. You know, obviously I'll give them up when, when I'm married. Would, would you like to be, you know, first in line to take them over? So I went to see them, and it was two rooms off a staircase, you know, uh, a bedroom and uh, kitchen and dining room sort of thing, you know, um, it shows you how long ago it was. The rent was five pounds a week, which uh, I had a struggle to afford. Say <laughs> in those days, but you know, I desperately wanted my own place, mm. so I took it. One day when I was um, coming in, I saw this little bald-headed man painting the staircase, and I always say I probably thought he was, a, you know, an artisan, a worker, and probably said. Good morning, my good man, <laughs> as I went by. And then later on, I said to someone else in my house, who's that little chap who's always around, you know, because I'd seen him quite a lot. And they said, oh, he's the owner of the house. And uh, Mac had got an aunt, a great aunt, called Miss Winifred Boot, believe it or not. And uh, he bought the house and installed her in it as landlady as a way of sort of looking after her, you know, because mm. he mm. was an immensely kind man, you know. She go she was a vague old lady and she drove him crazy, but he was always extremely kind to her. And uh, they said 
he's uh, actually he's a television scriptwriter. And since at that time, you know, I was a uh, copywriter in advertising and uh, keen to get out of it into proper writing, um, yeah, you know, I sort of cultivated his acquaintance, you see. And luckily, we got on, you know, and, we, and he was, uh, you know, we chatted about the difficulties of getting started and that kind of thing, and he told me about his career, you know, we used to have cups of coffee or drinks together. And this is the amazing thing. Um, one day he said to me, um, Terrence, I've got a problem, I'm a bit stuck. And I, I said, what's up? You know, and he said, well, he said, the Avengers have asked me to write uh, another script for them, and I just can't think of anything, you know, I'm really stuck. And he said, have you got any ideas? And I said, Mac, have I got ideas? <laughs> <laughs> and um, it ended, you know, so we started talking about it, and it ended up with uh, my first uh, television credit, which was uh, Mac and I co-wrote an Avengers together called The Mauritius Penny. You know, it was incredibly generous of Mac. He insisted on joint credit, you know, on the screen, mm. and 50-50 split of the money. Yeah. You know, I'd have done it for nothing to get my name on the screen, you know. That seemed to work well, and uh, over the years we did two or three more. So that was the beginning of it. And then after that, Mac was sort of generally helpful. One day said to me, Crossroads are looking for writers. Uh, would you like to meet the, uh, I think he was assistant producer or script editor, Rene Goddard? Um, and I said, yes, fine. And that got me the job on Crossroads which was my sort of first uh, break in television, first, uh, after the Avengers. And that led to me meeting, eventually meeting Derek Sherwin, which led eventually to Doctor Who. So I owe a lot to Mac. So it was a series of happy coincidences almost. <laughs> Ab- absolutely. In fact, that's uh, typical of my entire career. Um, when I was a lad in the East End, there was a sort of uh, farewell, and you'd say to someone, well, cheerio, mate, be lucky. And uh, certainly that's what's happened to me. I do feel I've been incredibly lucky throughout my life. Certainly one of the last events in that chain was that relationship with Mac, I believe, on on the War Games. And uh, I I think I'm right in saying that's your first credit on Doctor Who. Yes, yes, indeed. Now, perhaps we ought to go back a bit. Um, Because of uh, getting the job on Crossroads, which I mentioned, I met Derek Sherwin. Derek was script editor of Doctor Who, but didn't really want to be. He wanted to get an, an, what he regarded as a superior job on a play series, and he couldn't leave without a replacement. And uh, after trying several people who didn't work out, <laughs> he turned in some desperation to me, and phoned up one day and said, uh, how would you like to be script editor of Doctor Who? And it was as simple as that, you know, so if that's not luck, I don't know what is. Though I began to doubt whether it was lucky, because when I got there, the uh, script situation was in utter chaos. I mean, I see why he he needed help. It took, you know, a while to sort that out. And a sign, as it were, of just how bad it is. Um, And, you know, this is slightly exaggerated, but not greatly. Mac, um, Derek came into my office one day and said, Terence, we need a ten-part Doctor Who. you've got to write it and we need it next week. And what had happened was that uh, 
two of their projects had collapsed, the six-parter and the four-parter. And they had, you know, the uh, terrible idea of combining it and doing a ten-part Doctor Who. Now, I knew I couldn't do this on my own. You know, I couldn't do it in the time, and I didn't have the experience. So I promptly um, brought in Mac, and we, we co-wrote it together. Now, Mac mentions uh, writing the War Games mm. with you in, in his interview that we've, we've yeah. just heard. Did, did listening to him talk about how he became involved there bring back any, any new memories for you? That was really such an extraordinary event. I've got very clear memories of it anyway. You know. <laughs> um, in those days, it was before word processes, you see, and, you know, we we worked on typewriters, on ordinary, I don't think even electronic, we worked on ordinary typewriters. Mac was a sort of human word processor. He is the only, Mac was extremely well organized, extremely meticulous. He's the only writer I, I ever knew or heard of. When he decided to become a writer, he went and learned to touch type. I don't know anybody who did that. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sort of two-finger hunt-and-peck typist, you know. I'm a very fast, competent <laughs> two-finger typist, but I never had any training, you know, I ne- never learned, uh, except by, you know, uh, writing considerable number of books and scripts. Mac was a touch typist, and the way we used to work was that, uh, I remember a big part of the job was preparing about six sets of carbons, you know, um, because uh, that was, you, you had to provide carbons for the, uh, you know, other departments and things. First of all, we had to assemble the carbon paper, you know, uh, into these sheets of carbon and typing paper, and then Mac would sit down at the typewriter and we pick up where we got to and discuss the line and uh, one of us would say a line and Mac would go boom and t- you know, it appeared on the page. It's wonderful. I'd never have done it without him. Oh, wonderful. I mean, you mentioned the, the, the practical way that uh, Mac organised himself, mm. uh, but, but but certainly the way that he composed and came up with his ideas. I mean, he, he famously said, and he said it in the interview, you know, you've got two stories, Aliens Invade or You Go and that, See. That, that's right. Yeah, so, no, that was... When Barry and I finally took over on Doctor Who, and our two predecessors, uh, Peter Byrne and Derek Sherwin, uh, went off to do a show called Paul Temple, they left us with a number of decisions, all bad. <laughs> one, one of them was to exile the Doctor to Earth, mm. which is fine. You know, I love the unit stuff, and it's fine for a show or two, but if every story is a unit story, you know, you're stuck with monotony. And um, the other was to do longer shows, hence all those seven parters in, uh, in in our first season. That's a bad idea. It's hard enough to get a six-part for Doctor Who. A four-part is ideal, you know, get a good four-part, you rattle along and you're through it. But, um, so we, we were stuck with that. And... Um, the, the the whole reason for their their doing that was uh, was to save money, you see. Yeah, it's it, it's it's interesting because I I certainly have heard people talk about budget constraints um, on season. Yeah, seven. we were all, yeah. always hard up, you know. Yeah, but the, the, then it just turned out due to strike action, I believe the the first four parter was exclusively on location, which of course is usually much more expensive than than studio mounting. An yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know that. That, in a sense, couldn't be helped, and there was mm. a good excuse for that. But uh, 
we we had uh, you know we we were fairly often played with overspends. Um, Barry used to say he took over the show when it was cheap, and by the time he left, it was expensive. <laughs> In the, in the terms of the day. But of course, then you see, um, the BBC was coining it through selling color television licenses. So they were not so strict as they later became, you know, on overspends. You got a mild back over the muscles, over the knuckles. But if it was a good show, you know, and, and did well, um, no, you know, you, you were forgiven. Do, do you think the constraints that you, you've outlined there, um, made Mac come up with some innovative ways of telling stories in as much as that a lot of his stories are morally ambiguous and there's no clear villain sometimes and that was relatively new territory for the show at the time. Mm, I don't think that was budget constraints that was just Mac you know that was the way his mind worked you see I mean I always uh, denied this thing you know that who had political motivations because we never had any conscious or deliberate ones but what a writer believes and thinks will come out in his work you know, and uh, Max came from a le- very left-wing background in the old Unity Theatre. And as long, you know, and as long as the show wasn't ostentatiously preaching, as it were, um, I was quite happy with that, you know, because it leads to uh, conflict in the story, you see. I think also if you look at some of the way the military personnel are portrayed, uh, you know, accepting units, then the senior military figures don't come off very well in his stories. No, um, some of some of that uh, might have been Barry's influence as well, you know, because mm. Barry was uh, always uh, against sort of uh, against intolerant, you know, dictatorial authority. You know, I mean, so very often the doc and the doctor, of course, is a rebel by nature, so he very often comes into conflict with the commanding general or the man from the ministry. You, you mentioned how a writer's idea almost inevitably manifests themselves in their in their work. I mean, how conscious was Mac, do you think, of, of, of that happening with his script? No, I don't think he was at all, you see. It was the only, when you sit down to discuss a story, you know, a script, all you want is a good story that's going to hold the viewer, you know, for the necessary six or in those days seven episodes you see that that's mm. your concern i mean people have asked me over the years you know what were your aims and ambitions for the show and what i always say is my aims and ambitions were that the bbc should not have to show the test card at six o'clock on saturday <laughs> afternoon get the show out you see i mean people don't realize how difficult television production is it really is incredibly complicated and difficult your first aim is to get a show, actually have a finished, completed, suitable for transmission show. On top of that, you'd like it to be a good one. <laughs> but uh, the main thing is that it should be there, you know, that you should actually do it, you see. So your preoccupations are, in fact, very different. And the, only, the thought about the story is not is it carrying a suitable message, but does it work? Is it exciting? Will the viewers want to know what's going to happen next? That's always your priority, you see. It's a, it's a question of being, pri- of being professional. And what I wanted was a good Doctor Who that will be well received by the, you know, the fans and the general audience and perform well in the ratings. And that was always my sole objective. 
The last question I'd like to ask you about what, what Mac was saying it was that right at the top of the interview, he talked about a commission uh, that he received uh, for the first Doctor's era, a very early Doctor story, and he talked about the plotting there as well. I mean, how much did you know about that, or was, was that new to you? It wasn't new to me, but I, it wasn't sort of very much in, you know, uh, very fresh in my mind, as it were. You know, I think uh, probably at some stage, you know... Um, it was useful that Matt had worked on Who before I did, and um, we were, you know, so we would certainly have talked about it, you see. So, but as I say, I, was, I wasn't particularly uh, okay with this at the time. Okay, moving on, Terence. Uh, let, let's talk about your um, absolute legendary association with the show. Um, it's long. <laughs> it's long, I yes. If you, if you last long enough, you become a legend. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think you have to be good in order to last long enough to start with. But, mm. uh, but 1968, uh, so your first involvement. Uh, That's right. 1968, when I joined, I didn't take mm. over to a full selector until 69. Um, Derek had hired me to replace him, and then he didn't get the job he wanted. Um, there were two of us for a while, um, and it was okay, because Derek and I you know, have always been good friends. And um, it took him a year to set up, uh, he and Peter Bryant, it took them at least a year to set up Paul Temple, you know, which was a show that was going to get them off who, you see, which they always regarded as a stepping stone, you know. It wasn't a well-regarded show, really, you know, mm, around the mm. time I joined. It was a... A children's show that might have been on its last legs, kind of thing. So uh, Derek wanted to get off into something more prestigious, and but that took a year. So there was a year where we were uh, sort of working together, or when he was passing things over to me, you know. So mm. that was actually quite useful. And and certainly when you when you took over, I mean, the show had reached a landmark period. Turned out to be new doctor you've already talked about some of the constraints that were that were foisted upon you but certainly I, i'd be interested in discussing casting of the third doctor john pertwee peter bryant cast john pertwee mm-hmm. and that was a fait accompli that uh, barry and i both had you know when we both took over barry let's came in to uh, to replace uh, peter bryant and so we always knew it was going to be pertwee so we didn't really have any influence on that that was just there when we came to do uh, Tom Baker later on, Barry was immensely conscientious, you know, and uh, he saw he saw lots and lots of actors on a sort of contingency basis. He he would see them and say, "I'm not offering you the job of Doctor Who, but what would you say if I did? You know, would you be interested?" He couldn't find anybody. I mean, um, I know, for instance, he saw Fulton Mackay. Mm. Um, who would have been very good, but said, well, of course, I would want to be involved in the writing of the show. And, you know, uh, Barry said, and, you know, I agree completely, uh, we can't have that. You know, you can't have the inmates running the asylum. <laughs> so, um, he, you know, he wouldn't do, and various other people, um, you know, didn't, he wasn't really quite happy with. And then the head of, uh, head of the department, um, 
She just said, there's this chap from Baker, you know, and I've seen him in the play, and uh, he's very good, and he's in a film, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, or The Golden mm-hmm. Voyage, something like that. So Barry and I took the afternoon off and went to the pictures and went to see him. And he was, uh, you know, he was very good. He was playing, playing the Wicked Magician, but it was a very good strong performance. And uh, Barry was impressed with him and took it on from there, as it were. I always used to say the good thing uh, about my job was I had Barry Letts to do the difficult bits. <laughs> and, you know, he would go off to a meeting with the Scene Shifters Union or something who were threatening to strike. And I would go home with an armful of scripts, you know, because mm. um, that, that's what I do, as it were, you know, words on paper. Certainly during the period of time that uh, you were script editing for the Third Doctor era, I mean, there was a number of iconic characters. I mean, we, we, we call them iconic now. I'm, I'm sure it wasn't like that at the time. No, but, you can't uh, be iconic at the time. No. no, it's a shame, really, isn't it? But uh, but look at, looking at some of the, the companions, I mean, um, even Caroline John, uh, who was only there for four stories. Yeah, her again though, to be to be honest, we inherited. Peter Bryant cast her and uh, it, it's a it's rather a sad thing really because um, she she you know she's an excellent actress. But the character, um, you know, she was a super scientist, uh, sort of conscripted from Cambridge by the Brigadier. And Barry began to feel that it was no good having two super scientists on one show. As it were. <laughs> uh, you needed somebody for the doctor to explain things to, you see. And I think Carrie always felt that the reason, you know, that she was not kept after one season was that, you know, we didn't like her or Barry didn't like her acting. But she's a very good actress if she's got a strong dramatic part. Mm. But being a companion is a whole different sort of kettle of fish, you see. So we eventually, uh, we conceived the character who will be completely op- opposite, you see, young and feckless and not, you know, quite bright, but not particularly highly educated. And uh, that was Joe Grant, who was, you know, really the opposite to uh, to this show. The, the character was the antithesis, really, of what had gone before. Um, was there any discussion about having a more formalised farewell to, to Caroline Johns? No, I, um, I, I don't think there ever was. You know, it, it was probably all of it kind of hurried because we were very much in constant crisis in those early days but again you see that is not my wasn't my area of work so i, I really wouldn't know when when you're sitting down with um with, with barry and you're talking about right okay what kind of companion would work you know really really well i mean how how do those meetings or how do those meetings take place we're usually in the bbc bar <laughs> very often <laughs> in the bbc bar or, or over lunch you know and we sort of chat around it till um and Larry and I usually sort of thought alike, you know, so um, something would, as it were, begin to emerge. And because of the reason for not keeping Carrie, you know, the character of um, of Joe Grant, you know, emerged fairly simply, as it were. We wanted somebody very different. Hmm. The casting, you see, um, again, that was a problem because we couldn't, Barry couldn't find, I mean, I, I did in fact attend the casting sessions for the Barry then, I mean, Barry would use me as a sort of unofficial assistant producer, you know. I went to the castings, and um, we saw a lot of, um, you know, Barry saw a number of girls, you know, and some of them are sort of absolutely stunningly beautiful, but nobody who um, felt was absolutely right. 
And then uh, Katie turned up at the last minute, having sort of lost her way to the studio, to the studio or something. <laughs> and, you know, she was sort of uh, short-sighted, scattering papers, made a complete shambles of the read-through. And when she'd gone, Barry and I looked at each other and said, well, that's it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> she's the one, you know, because she's such a bubbly personality. Still is, but I met her the other day. Yes, 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 she was at the BFI. At BFI, yeah. Wonderful, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting seeing how certain companions have lasted uh, throughout the years and others haven't. I mean, how how proprietorial are you over, let's say, the character of Joe Grant? Well, not not especially, you know, I mean... She worked at the time, and uh, you know we developed a way to use to use her. And uh, you know she was constantly getting kidnapped by the master, or uh, I think she brought didn't she bring a bomb into Unit HQ at one stage? You know, so, so she uh, she tended to get into trouble, but she she was an excellent character. And you see, it's it's a thankless task being the companion because it's the Doctor's show. Mm. The show is less interesting when the Doctor isn't on the screen, so you've got to have somebody who can make something of a very subsidiary role, you see, which Katie could. So, you know, when Katie decided um, that she wanted to leave, then the only the only thought is, yeah, fine, thank you very much, goodbye, Katie, who's next? You know, what sort of character are we going to have next? Mm. You didn't spend any time in nostalgia about it, and uh, they stayed and followed Katie, you see, well... Now, that was another sort of uh, evolution out of Katie. We had a sort of rather hopeless and helpless heroine for a long time. Feminism was gaining strength, and uh, I always say, you know, the job of the companion is to be strapped to the railway lines <laughs> and scream till the doctor comes and rescues her. But we, it became obvious we weren't going to get away with that much longer. And so I think Barry, to a very considerable, Barry's much more of a feminist than I am. And Barry came up with the idea of a strong female character, who in fact wasn't in any sense a companion or an assistant at all. You know, she was an independent journalist with her own job. We, we got an entirely different character in the part. Certainly, I think... Um people do associate the success of the show now to the dynamic the Doctor has with their companion. And, and that's something I think has just grown and grown and grown through through modern Who. And, and yet there is something incredibly warming as a fan to look back at some of the 70s shows and say, yes, that's that's what really created my Doctor Who. And, mm. and how does it feel almost to have had a very, very significant impact and a lot of fans' enjoyment of the show just through making Doctor Who your way? Well, you see, it's not a thing I sit down and feel about. It was my job. I did it as well as I could in all that time. And I'm very pleased, you know, people come up afterwards and say how much they liked the show or how good something was. And that's very gratifying, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but that's a kind of incidental later thing, as it were, you know. I don't sort of sit around all the time thinking what a living legend I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny because there's plenty of others who do. Um, and I, I quite understand how, you know, you, you're there at the time, you're doing a job. But certainly very few other people, I would say, uh, with, within a position have the opportunity to look back and say, actually, I can still see there's a physical appreciation of, of what mm. we did. And, so, you know, uh, it takes me... But faintly by surprise, you know, really, really <laughs> because it was uh, it was a long time ago. And the other thing that happens is that uh, 
things that uh, weren't well regarded at the time changed status, as it were. Like uh, one of my shows, Hole of Fang Rock, mm. is now very highly regarded, but it was it wasn't particularly popular at the time. Or the war games, you see. Over the years at conventions and things, you know, I mean, I say ten parts is disastrously long. And over the years, I developed a kind of line about it. You know, I used to say, well, it starts off well, and it ends well with the title of the Doctor, but in between, there's a lot of chasing up and down corridors and captures and recaptures, you know, which is all this too, actually. Recently, when it was uh, republished on uh, on DVD, the uh, Doctor Who magazine reviewed it, you know, very favourably, said how good it was, and said, Terence has been talking nonsense about this show. It's a very good show for all ten episodes. And other people have said the same to me, you see. Well, that's, that's very gratifying many, many years later. Hmm. No, certainly. I think as, as people come to the show now, they know it's, uh, it's an institution, fundamentally. And, <laughs> and, and therefore, people look at things in a very different way to how mm. the audience digested it on, on transmission. Time, really. Yeah, and I, I love that about Doctor Who because generally the more time that goes on, the more people love the show. <laughs> and I think that's... Yes, uh, good, yes, absolutely. And it's all down to the people like yourself who are involved in it at a time. Um, but before we go, Terence, I'd love to discuss the uh, the absolute legacy that you've, you've left Doctor Who fans. And I know very many fans lots of my friends actually got into the show through reading your novelizations for for targets and um i just just wondered how how it came about that you ended up writing nearly 80 i think <laughs> nearly 80 in total it may be it used to be around 70 but if you um it's probably a little over 70 and then of course there's uh, there are the novels you know i uh, there are, i think there's three or four or four or five novels I mean, the trouble is, some of this stuff is so long ago, you know, you know, they just republished players. Yes, indeed, as part of the 50th anniversary. You know, which I'd almost forgotten about, so I reread oh. it, and I sat there thinking, this is pretty good stuff. It is. <laughs> quite pleased with it. Yeah. <laughs> It's it, it's brilliant, and I think it's great to... I mean, Players is one particular book, but, but The Eight Doctors as well, which kicked off the BBC range. Yes, yeah, when uh, the BBC suddenly decided to take the Who books back from... Uh, well, I think it was Virgin by then, it had changed hands. Um, they'd never valued the show very much, and uh, the BBC. When originally Target Books said, can we do novelizations, the BBC just said OK and gave them a sort of indefinite license, you know, they weren't particularly interested. But as the thing built, you know, and the books became more profitable, um, one year uh, Virgin went back and said, can we renew our BBC license? And the BBC said, no, <laughs> we're going to do it ourselves. And they asked me to write, uh, what was it, The Eight Doctors, which mm. was, uh, mm. as it were, the first BBC Doctor Who novel. I remember buying my copy. Ah. And I thought that since, you know, part of the aim was to attract a new readership, or possibly, you know, people who didn't know the show, that um, it would be a good idea to have something with all the doctors to date in and give them a sort of briefing, you know, on the the story so far well there's there's been a lot of uh, talk recently and I, I i don't know how how true it is perhaps uh, perhaps you can enlighten us um about an animated version of the eight doctors um, yeah this, this i really don't know anything about you know it's uh, i mean it's like the colorization you know um 
I, I approve and admire it, but I don't understand it <laughs> about it. Well, you never know. Perhaps that's something you can uh, you can watch at some point. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Wonderful. Terence, it's been an absolute pleasure spending just a short period of time talking to you. Thank you very much indeed. Not at all. Well, my pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Well, how about that, guys? 200 episodes. I mean, in all honesty, it's considerably more than 200 episodes, isn't it? With all the quizzes, <laughs> the special editions, you name it. I think we went over the 200 mark a long, long time ago. But this is certainly going to go down in, in my memory as an episode of the DWP that I will remember putting together. Malcolm Hulk and Terence Dix, guys. How about that? Round of applause, pat on the back, I think. Uh, give, ourselves, give ourselves a pat on the back. There are a few people who I just want to say thank you to because there's a surprising number, now that I'm going to go through them, there's a surprising number of people who were instrumental in, in making this episode come about. Uh, we've already talked about Martin Spalacy and Gary Hopkins. Simon Gurrier and Paul Cornell uh, were also instrumental. So thank you very much indeed for your help. So that's it for episode 200 of the Doctor Who podcast. Where will we go in 201? Well, we go into an episode of New Who. There's New Who on the horizon, folks. You're excited. We're excited. We'll see you soon to talk about it. Hope you can join us. This is bye from me. And bye from me. Yeah, bye from me too. Bye-bye. Cheerio. That was the Doctor Who podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.